Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about trust-based philanthropy. We're looking at the value and the importance of long-term unrestricted funding provided by foundations and other grant makers. And to talk about this, it is a real pleasure to welcome onto the show John Randall of the Peter Cundill Foundation. They're based out in Bermuda. They currently grant out about $9 million annually, and they operate internationally, different markets, the UK, Canada, Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, Children's Investment Fund Foundation, and many others. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a second ago, today is a real pleasure to welcome John Randall of the Peter Cundell Foundation, and we're going to be talking about trust-based philanthropy. John, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Hi, Alberto. Really good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. So tell us a little bit about trust-based philanthropy. What, what is that all about? Well, it starts with the assumption that if someone is running a charity with a mission to improve the world, that they're doing that under good faith. That doesn't in and of itself mean that every charity is going to be effective or a good place to invest philanthropic dollars if you're seeking impact. But it starts from that assumption rather than the assumption that every charity is out to trick you out of money. And for me, if you can find partners that you can trust as a philanthropy, then getting them the money they need to do their thing, being held to account by their board of trustees and make progress towards their mission is the most efficient way you can have an impact as a, as a uh, philanthropy or a donor organization. Hmm. Now, many people listening to this might think, yeah, that sounds great. And I'm sure there's others who are thinking, hmm, I'm a little, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. And we're going to drill into these things. Before we do, though, tell me a little bit about the Peter Cundill Foundation. What's it all about? Um, give us a little bit of a flavor for the organization. Yeah, so Peter himself was a Canadian financier who died about uh, 10 years ago. He was a value investor, which meant he made his money uh, a bit like Warren Buffett by finding organizations that were um, strong organizations, but not necessarily the sexiest companies around, but they, they you know, had weak current share prices. He bought those and then he sold them at a profit. And um, he left a lot of money with actually reasonably kind of loose uh, guidance as to as to how that money should be spent and that that funding now is a sort of multi hundred million uh, dollar kind of endowment um, and we're spending as you said nine million dollars or so a year focused on um, improving the lives of children around the world um, so 
we're primarily looking for impact, uh, but there's also some legacy aspects where we're looking for impact in line with some of Peter's interests historically as well. And so there's there's a balance between those two things, as is often the case in in foundations with uh, individual uh, donors or founders. Um, we're based in Bermuda, and that's you know one of the uh, great privileges of the job is that we sometimes have to go there, although it hasn't been true in the last 18 months. I say have in inverted commas, um, and that's where we make our decisions as to where where our funding goes to and what our strategy looks like. Mm. And thematically speaking, you, you mentioned children. Give us a little bit more detail on the th on thematic areas that you're backing. It is, it's broad. One of, one of the things about trust-based philanthropy is you don't want to narrow your geographical or sectoral scope too much because as soon as you do you're that there'll be far more organizations that don't quite fit with what you specifically looking for and it encourages restricting re restricted grants as soon as you start having a very very narrow focus so what we're looking for is impactful organizations in in the broad field of improving the lives of children and rather than second guessing what impact should look like we're focused on great organizations that are having impact in the broadest sense if you see what i mean um at, rather than having too many judgments around exactly what type of impact we're looking for what that means is in the uk and canada the richer world countries that we focus on we're mainly looking for organizations that are either improving the efficiency of government spending in some way through uh, you know developing programs and then advising the government uh, to to spend public monies better or um earning some of their revenue from government contracts or pot potentially other types of trading so that our philanthropy can be highly leveraged. Um, our unrestricted grants then give them the core operating funds they need to grow the business and build revenue streams from those other sources. And, the, and that is based on a theory of um, we're, we're only really interested in organizations that are ambitious and looking to grow impact over time rather than just uh you know get to a certain size and then happily shog along because we want to have maximum impact per per dollar they don't need to be huge at the time we start backing them but we're looking to try and take them through a growth curve and then in africa there is such a huge need around basic education and core education that we're principally focused on that and we're looking for organizations in effect that um, increase the number of learning adjusted years of school in the world. Um, so not just getting extra bums on seats, but making sure that those kids are learning when they're in school as well. So that they get into school, they learn and then they complete school and the relationship between doing that and impact on the rest of the lives of those children is well known and absolutely extraordinary. Excellent. Yeah, I like that that sort of quality adjusted education, right? I mean, if you compare one year of education in Singapore or South Korea versus some other market, they're not equivalent just because it happens to be one academic year. Exactly. And I think what, one of the things that the reasons that I'm excited about that is there has been this false dichotomy but in the education sector internationally between people that are focused on access and people that are focused on quality. 
And actually what matters is access with quality. And you can get a, a, a sort of yeah, quality adjusted or a learning adjusted year of schooling um, through extra access or extra quality or the two combined. And it just means that you're focused on learning itself rather than one or the other. Mm. Now, it's easier said than done, right? I mean, you're saying, yes, you'd like to have the quality and the scale, but having those two side by side working very nicely with each other isn't always so straightforward. How are you filling up that pipeline of potential grantees? Where are you actively going out and researching? Are you, do you welcome applicants or interested parties? How does that work? Well, I think one of the, the reasons that the trustees brought me in particularly to uh, lead this process is before I ran the foundation, I was running an organization called PEAS, which is a network of schools in Uganda and Zambia. And I like to think now that, that PEAS does represent that, that difficult balance between increasing access and, and doing so at quality as well. And I guess to some extent, we're looking for organizations that, that meet what I, you know, um, think is that the high bar of uh, of peas. We're continuing to fund peas. Uh, I kind of absent myself from the decision around peas because of at least the conflict of loyalty. Um, but we're looking for other organisations that that do find that balance. Uh, in internationally, we've got twelve or thirteen organisations in what we're calling the core thirty. So one of the big changes that we brought in is having fewer larger longer term partnerships and they're called it's called a core 30 portfolio and the reason is because any philanthropy with huge numbers of partners just increases the total number of transaction costs in the in the sector and each time that you have another transaction it costs money for both the philanthropy and the recipient so my idea is that actually it'd be better if all foundations had fewer partnerships, but made those partnerships longer term, more consistent and more balanced wherever possible. So yeah, we are, we're looking internationally for organizations that, that get that balance right, that maximize learning adjusted years of schooling. Um, we've just backed uh, a great organization in Botswana that's focused on what is a sort of famous new area of uh, particularly basic school education, which is called teaching at the right level and is rolling out the teaching at the right level concept as fast as it can across lots of Africa. And that is very, very strongly evidence-based. Uh, so you've got that background evidence base combined with an, uh, a successful organization that has proven impact and proven ability to implement itself. So it's that, you know, there, we've got a huge range of criteria as to what we're looking for. Um, but basically, we're looking for great leadership, strong governance, existing proof of impact or commitment to monitoring an impact, a sensible, coherent theory of impact and um, business model or programmatic approach, all these different things. And it's quite hard to be, you know, excellent across all those criteria. But actually, we are finding in, in, in finding 30 organizations in those geographies, we, we can basically find organizations which are consistently excellent and yet need this unrestricted long-term funding to help them grow their impact over time. Are you happy to hear from interested parties who who would like to raise their hand and say, look, take a look at us, uh, those who might be interested in funding? 
I, I wish we could take on more than more than you know we are able to. Um, the answer is yes, um, because even where we have full portfolios, we're wanting to build a long list of potential organisations. Should uh, should one of the organisations exit the the portfolio on the back of success when they get um, larger than say twenty or million turnover which generally we're regarding as going beyond the sweet spot for the period in which we want to take them through a growth curve um, but also we've got some space in the canadian portfolio so i think organizations focused on improving the lives of children in canada we're looking to hear from particularly at the moment great and just to clarify when you're saying children it's including young people as well right so up to the age of 25 exactly yeah i think one of the things that um child development experts and um, psychotherapists, uh, child and adolescent psychotherapists have, have really worked out in the last 20, 30 years is that this this false sense of the, the age at which someone stops being a child, you know, is is, is actually really damaging in the, in the sector. You know, you've got kids leaving care at the age of 18 and suddenly falling off a cliff. And that's changing now, which is great. But maturity, you know, I, I didn't I didn't don't think I was mature. Well, well, I don't know if I'm quite mature yet, but I certainly wasn't mature until my late 20s. Some of us might never be fully mature. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope not. <laughs> Depends on who we speak with within our family. Now, perhaps you were a little bit ahead of your time, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to pay you a compliment, but I was doing a bit of research about the work that, that you guys have been doing, and you, and you referenced the uh, Core 30 portfolio as your approach. You know, now, that you launched, if I'm not mistaken, in 2019, which was, uh, by your own words, you know, a, a radical new giving strategy focused on maximizing total impact, and, um, you know, and it's seen you building fewer, deeper funding partnerships, each one based on a high degree of trust and also normally would benefit from longer term unrestricted funding alongside a range of non-financial support. And so that sort of that last sentence there, that last bid is the sort of stuff that people are talking about now in the context of a pandemic. I don't think that was really a theme back in 2019. Uh, yes, there was the notion of streamlining and so forth, but the push, the really big push for, uh, unrestricted long-term funding trust and seems to have really picked up speed now tell tell me a little bit about how what did the thinking happen in 2019 um because again you, you seem to be having a, a big shiny crystal ball in terms of <laughs> where things might have been going the, the next 12 18 months after that well yeah no thanks it, well, let me start by just saying why i think the the sector's moved in the last year suddenly every single funder was aware that everything had changed for every single organization they funded all all at once and therefore those organizations needed to be flexible in their approach and they needed all those restrictions on their grants to be loosened so that they could adjust their practice of course what was happening before that is lots of organizations at any given point were needing to adjust according to their own specific situation and yet the funders weren't you know focused on unrestricted funding because the signal wasn't there and they weren't understanding that actually the world's changing all the time um, for these organizations and sometimes they just want to change where they 
prioritize their funding. And so I think what happened was you got this sort of strong signal. What matters now is that it sustains because even in a situation, let's say um, we move to a post-COVID world or at least a world where COVID isn't such a, a damaging part of our everyday kind of normality, um, will, will we go back to those restrictions again? Will people fall back into bad old habits? Um, I hope not. And I, and I think what's happened is that in giving unrestricted funding, a lot of foundations have realized, actually, we can understand this partner better than ever before. We can have richer conversations with this partner better than ever before. We can focus on um, the support that they need. And we can actually build trust because they're able to share with us, hopefully over time, some of the warts and all about the organization. Um, and that's, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, I think, a, a gradual realization. I think there's also a bit of social pressure coming along within the philanthropic community um, because, you know, what, I, I'll, I'll move into your, your original question now um, after, after that kind of um, initial, initial thought on, on what's been happening recently. I, I was running a grant receiving, you know, fundraising charity for 10, 11, 12 years. And I got battered around by, by funders. I got patronized by, by funders. I met some absolutely brilliant funders who were able to be empathetic to what it must feel like to be on the other side of a very asymmetric power relationship. But the majority of funders just didn't get it. Um, that, and so having that perspective, you know, I do, one of the things I've said since taking on this foundation is I do think that the perspective of coming from that other side is so important that I really hope most philanthropies, you know, would have at least one or two people in their teams who, who come from the recipient side. Because once you have received funds, you, A, you know how it feels to uh, be, be on the weaker side of that relationship. B, you know just how inefficient uh, restricted grants are. Restricted grants mean that the charity creates all these unnecessary projects in order to create, package up a, a, a grant request from the philanthropist. Half the projects wouldn't even happen anyway. It's called projectization in the business. Um, restricted grants mean higher audit costs, higher fundraising costs, higher accounting costs, because all those grants need to be mapped onto the, the cost structure of the charity in a kind of tessellation problem. Um, but perhaps most importantly of all, restricted grants undermine the motivation of the recipient charity, particularly the leaders of the recipient charity, who are no longer able to put money where they feel they need to, to have maximum impact, to do the work they believe is necessary to have maximum impact. And autonomy is such a critical part of motivation. And by restricted grants, you're, you're just taking that away from the organization. Not just autonomy of the CEO, but autonomy of the board which is there 
to hold the CEO to account for progress towards their mission. If you're undermining that accountability relationship as a funder, you're actually progressively going to make that organization less able to grow, develop, and be trustworthy because you take away the main structure which is responsible for them being um, effectively governed uh, and moving towards impact over time. Mm. Now, you mentioned the aspirations of the receiving charity and you know restricted funding perhaps being to the detriment of that. Let me tackle it from another angle and ask you, well, what about the aspirations of the funder of that foundation who may also very well have clear guides of what they want to see improve in the world and perhaps quite prescriptive guides in terms of where they want to go? Uh, is there uh, an argument to be said, well, if you don't have some restrictions in your funding that you're providing, you may not necessarily be running forward to meet your objectives as efficiently as you would like as a funder. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very different case, and, but it's important for the funder to recognize that in that situation, they're a contractor. They're not a grant maker. Uh, it shouldn't even be called a restricted grant in that situation. And you may as well contract a for-profit organization or a, a, you can contract a charity. Great if you think they're going to be able to deliver it more efficiently. But I think the problem comes when you when you have organizations that think they're, they know best about how the charity should spend its money. Um, if, you're, if you're wanting to contract a specific block of output um, or a specific act, then yeah, just, just call it a contract and it's a commercial transaction. If the charity is okay with taking on contracts as part of their revenue stream, that's fine. But I think the, you know, let's move away from this gray area. To some extent, there shouldn't even be restricted grants. You know, this is the point I'm trying to make. It's either unrestricted funding, if you're wanting to maximize your impact through that charity, or contracting if you're wanting to uh, move towards a particular set of outputs and outcomes yourself as a as an organization of course there's another option which is building your own internal capacity to run it yourself um, which which would be the other way of doing it and you can you can outsource some parts and you can insource others but what i don't think is a, is is fair is to have charities uh, receiving restricted grants where they're just scraping around for the 20% overhead fee and they don't actually want to deliver the project that you've decided that they should be delivering. Excellent. Very, very, very insightful. Now, in terms of the um, the peer network and the other foundations you see out there, without getting into any of the specifics, but restricted grant making is still very much part of the conversation, very much part of what's going on day to day. Is that something that you're doing something about? I mean, do you do you do you try to get these other CEOs, these other individuals running foundations and say, actually, wake up call? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I don't think anyone wants to be told off, even if I sound like I'm telling them off in this conversation. Uh, obviously, this type of conversation plays a role in making sure, you know, different views are out there. I do think I do think a lot of it comes down to a gap in understanding around the effects of restricted grants. I think what happens it, it, a big a big problem is that the charities themselves 
don't make the case for unrestricted funding because of the marginal risk that it will actually put the funder off altogether. And so you've got a classic tragedy of the commons where every individual organization really wants the, the, the unrestricted funding, but individually the, the cost benefit analysis of whether they should be pushing for it means that they don't. And so you end up in a, in a worse world um, overall. And I do think that, you know, that if I've got one bit of advice to charities is, uh, or maybe two bits of advice to charities, is build, build your unrestricted pitch so that you're ready to go with why, why, you know, actually unrestricted funding can have a big impact with your organization. Um, but also be prepared to make that general case as well, because if we all do the right thing rather than the easy thing, then I think the funding side of the sector will actually move as well. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do and what I think needs to be done is building understanding of the very, very large number of ways in which restricted grants undermine impact and reduce the efficacy of the organizations that we're trying to empower. Yeah. Now, we've been talking about the funding that comes from those larger organizations, generally speaking, the, let's call them institutional funders, if you want to. Um, there's a lot of money being donated by the general public. Uh, so small donations, high volume of very small donations here and there. Some foundations publicly go out to the market, as it were, and say, look, 100% of your donation will go to the front lines because um, our core costs are being covered by XYZ Foundation. Is that, uh, sh should that be part of the discourse? Should we be looking or encouraging organizations to, to frame things slightly differently? Because obviously the fact that you're framing it like that sort of helps to cement in, 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 the, in, the, in the wider view what the role of a donation should be. I think, that's, I think that is a big risk. And again, it, it's this kind of the importance of doing the right thing for the bigger picture rather than the, the pragmatic short-term thing. Um, so that you, your example is a, is a very good example. Um, the other the other example which i find frustrating is this sense that you can tell the effectiveness and the efficiency of a charity by looking at its percent overhead and you know anyone that's seen the the studies on the relationship between impact and percent overhead can can show you pretty quickly that it's absolutely not the case that lower overheads are always meet always lead to higher bang per buck you know actually they, there's a sweet spot which is far higher than most people would imagine um i i wish i could tell you the exact percent at which the you know on average is the sweet spot but it's it's i think it's over 30 percent in terms of the the amount that goes into operating systems management you know strategy fundraising to maximize the impact of the organization over the long run and i think that's another you know it's it, it, this is just disinformation or you know a lack of understanding that's out there in the community so yeah it's it's kind of beholden on all of us to keep making the case for doing the right thing um and not the easy thing hmm. unfortunately we are running out of time this is a conversation that we could easily go on for a few hours and just so <laughs> many questions a really fascinating topic let me ask you for a parting thought. Do you have a key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? 
Thanks. Yeah. And, and thanks so much for inviting me, Alberto. It's, it's really great, great to be here today. Um, I think the big thing is, is for funders, if you don't trust the organization you're supporting, then don't trust a restricted grant to that organization. Don't give them a restricted grant. And if you do trust them, then give them unrestricted funding. And for anyone involved in the other side in running charities, do the right thing, not the easy thing in terms of fighting the cause for unrestricted funding, because the evidence I've got is that charity CEOs would rather have $50,000 of unrestricted funding compared to $100,000 of restricted funding, which just shows this incredible difference in the value they place on that. That, was, that, that came from an unscientific <laughs> uh, Twitter poll, but by two to one, charity CEOs voted for the lower amount of restricted funding. So yeah, let's let's keep moving moving the dial on unrestricted funding, and hopefully we can all have more impact as a result. Excellent. Well, fascinating stuff. Thanks for sharing your insight with us, John. Really, a pleasure is entirely mine. Very interesting conversation. Uh, so I think it's useful not just for practitioners, but also for business school students and those who are interested in and looking at how to make philanthropy more effective and more efficient. John, thank you for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you, Alberto. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with others. And I'll see you next week.